Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a new report, White House for Sale, produced by Democrats on the House Oversight Committee that revealed Trump made $7.8 million from foreign governments while in the White House, $5.5 million from an adversary, China. Joining us is Dylan Hedler-Gadette, who is a Senior Government Affairs Manager at POGO, the Project on Government Oversight, where he advocates for good government policy solutions in a range of issue areas, including foreign influence, judicial ethics and transparency, greater accountability and openness at the Department of Justice, enhancing the capacity and integrity of Congress, and the protection of core constitutional principles, among others. Then, with the release of 40 documents out of 200 unsealed from the case against Jeffrey's Epstein's procurer, Ghislaine Maxwell, we'll look into the names named and speak with Nina Burley, a senior editor at The New Republic, best-selling author, documentary producer, and publisher of the Substack American Freak Show, an adjunct professor at New York University's Arthur J. Carter Journalism Institute. She has written seven books, the latest of which include Virus Vaccinations, the CDC, and the Hijacking of America's Response to the Pandemic, and Golden Handcuffs, The Secret History of Trump's Women, and is the producer of a recent documentary series available on Apple TV. Epstein's Shadow. Then, finally, we will speak with an Israeli-born and educated scholar who argues against Israel's philosophical apologists about the conduct of the war in Gaza. Joining us is Nir Eyal, the inaugural Henry Rutgers Professor of Bioethics at Rutgers University, where he's also founded and directs the Center for Population-Led Bioethics within the Institute of Health, Healthcare Policy and Aging Research. He's also an associate faculty member of Rutgers Department of Philosophy in the School of Arts and Sciences and has an article in the philosophy journal, The Daily Noose, Disproportionate and Intended Harm to Innocence in Israel's War in Gaza. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free without paywalls or constant fundraising as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Dylan Hetler-Gallet, who is a Senior Government Affairs Manager at POGO, the Project on Government Oversight, where he advocates for good government policy solutions in a range of issue areas, including foreign influence, judicial ethics and transparency, greater accountability and openness at the Department of Justice, enhancing the capacity and integrity of Congress, and the protection of core constitutional principles, among others. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dylan Hetler-Gadet. Thank you, Ian. I'm glad to be here. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of this release of this report from the Democrats on the House Oversight Committee titled White House for Sale? It's a 156-page report that just came out uh, that reveals that during his presidency, Donald Trump's businesses received $7.8 million from 20 foreign governments during his presidency. What do you make of that? Yeah, so I think that this situation and the report is uh, really, uh, really damning and clarifying, actually. Yeah, I think it highlights the ongoing and persistent issue we have where there are various levers of the federal government, and in this case, it was the White House, the highest level of the federal government, being uh, captured and influenced in some malign ways by foreign entities, be they foreign governments, be they foreign-owned companies, be they quasi-state entities. You know, in the case of the People's Republic of China, for example, there could be companies that are both quasi-private and quasi-state-owned. So this is a large problem that has existed for um, quite a while. But like so many things under the Trump administration, it was especially egregious and especially glaring, uh, you know, between 2017 and 2021. And China made the largest payments to Trump of $5.5 million. Um, and that some of that money came through China's embassy in the United States, the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China and the Hainan Airlines Holding Company. And then Saudi Arabia came in second, shelling out $615,000 to, to Trump World Tower and Trump International Hotel. The Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. was ground zero, wasn't it, for uh, bottom feeders who wanted to get uh, into the trough with Donald Trump? Yeah, yeah, it really was. And there was no... I think there was no shortage of entities, be they foreign and domestic, who saw the Trump International Hotel and spending lavish amounts of money there as a way to signal to the Trump administration, hey, we're, we have business that we're interested in, and you know, here's our entry point. <laughs> so we, we saw a lot of stories of things like this happening, a lot of reports coming out about people patronizing the Trump International Hotel, who used to, for example, spend that money at various other hotels and other venues in Washington that were also equally as close to the White House. So, so it does raise a lot of questions, you know, specifically when you, um, you know, you match up kind of who some of the top spenders were, you know, and the public statement that would come out of the White House, and specifically the public statement that President Trump himself would make around, you know, being very supportive and positive on the, um, you know, the leader of China and the leaders of Saudi Arabia being pretty lax and lenient when it came to Saudi Arabian uh, activities, particularly around the, um, you know, the killing of a Washington Post reporter. You know, uh, I think there's a lot of questions it raises about, you know, why decisions were made and why certain, you know, attitudes were held in the Trump administration during those years. And in the foreword of the report uh, that came out today, White House for sale by the Democrats on the House Oversight Committee, the ranking member now being Jamie Raskin. In his foreword, Jamie Raskin wrote, by elevating his personal financial interests and the policy priorities of corrupt foreign powers over the American public interest, former President Trump violated both the clear commands of the Constitution and the careful precedent set and observed by every previous commander-in-chief. Now, What's interesting to note here, Dylan, is that the the Democrats on the Oversight Committee, when they were in the majority, had a hard time getting this information, uh, obviously out of Trump, but they finally found a way to get the information out of his accountants, Mazars USA, 
when they were in the process of re revealing this incredible web of Trump cutouts and shell companies, etc., and how he was being paid by foreign entities. But the minute that Coma, Representative Coma, took over when the Republicans um, won back the House in the last election, that in whole inquiry was abandoned, right? And then instead, Coma turns his attention to the so-called Biden crime family. And so far, he hasn't found a damn thing to support all of these wild charges he makes about the Biden crime family, but he buried access to information about the Trump crime family that's making out like bandits. Yeah, yeah, I think you're uh, I think you're right to key in on how, um, you know, I think this is another example of how Congress really doesn't act, you know, the way we expect Congress to or the way under the Constitution and under the framers conception of our government, the way Congress is supposed to be you know, its own independent institution and it's supposed to care about its own prerogatives. It's not supposed to be simply an extension of you know, partisan interest and whoever happens to be running the White House at that time. And that's that's a large issue here too, and it really bleeds into a lot of the why our federal government is so dysfunctional the way it is now. And this, you know, Comer to Raskin, Raskin to Comer sort of thing, you know, Trump to Biden, Biden to Trump. I think it's a classic example of how how when Congress stops viewing itself as its own institution that cares about its own prerogatives and has its own power, and and instead sees itself as an extension of whoever's in the White House, either because they want to oppose whoever's in the White House or they want to support who, whoever's in the White House, you know, we see problems here. We had a legitimate investigation going on, and then because the party, party control switched, all of a sudden that investigation stopped. And so Congress isn't in the business of doing, you know, oversight because it's important to do on its own merits, but rather it's doing oversight if it's going to help whoever, you know, you know whichever party happens to be in control at the time. So that's a big that's a big issue that is longstanding, and I don't see how we're going to you know, remove ourselves from that death spiral. Well, is that to say, as many uh, have observed, that essentially Donald Trump, who's clearly the front runner, essentially the head of the Republican Party, that Coma on his committee and even the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, are essentially taking orders from Trump? Is, is that what's going on here? Because... Psychologists would call this projection, that Trump projects his guilt onto Biden. So here's Trump making out 7.8 million from foreign entities, one of the major one with the biggest donor being uh, essentially an adversary of the United States. And on the other side, you've got everybody, Comer, running around trying to find stuff on Hunter Biden and every day making it incredibly hyperbolic statements about all kinds of scandals that never pan out. Uh, there's never any there there. There's never any evidence. So is this evidence now in this report going to resonate or have the Trumpsters muddied the water to the point where people just don't care or don't want to f look at the details? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, as much as I hate to say it, I think it's probably the latter there. I don't I don't see the report having much impact, despite the fact that it is an incredibly damning report that does have a lot of really gory details in terms of, you know, financial entanglements and conflicts of interest. And it really speaks to the, you know, you know, um, you know, cries for reform and additional sort of restrictions and rules around government ethics and integrity and trying to crack down on potential corruption, things that, you know, groups like Pogo have been calling, you know, you know, we've been trying to make these things 
happened for years, and it just seems to fall on deaf ears again because of those partisan concerns I was talking about earlier. And to be fair, you know, sometimes we do approach Democrats in Congress as well, you know, and they seem reluctant as well to do things if it's going to hurt, you know, a Democratic administration or look like it might hurt a Democratic administration. So I think the the key issue, the key problem is that partisanship is ruining, you know, the legislative process and the oversight process. And, um, you know, here, of course, you know, under the Trump administration, we saw that a lot of the existing sort of weaknesses and holes and gaps in the law, you know, in the rules, you know, were just blown open. But all those gaps and loopholes and cracks, you know, they did exist before and they continue to exist now. And so I think for us, the big concern is what are we going to do to try to avoid this happening again? Because it is, you know, possible. It's basically a 50-50 toss up. We could have another Trump administration as of 2025, or we could have another Biden administration. And then later we could have a different type of administration who, you know, could possibly get up to the same kind of shenanigans we're seeing in this report. But if we don't, do anything now while there's an opportunity to, you know, plug some of these holes and to create new safeguards around the revolving door and financial conflicts of interest and requirements around divestiture and things of that nature. And I think we're just going to have a repeat of the same exact movie, you know, if not tomorrow, next year, you know, 10 years from now. But isn't this an unprecedented situation to have a former president who we've, this report reveals is taking all this foreign money while he was in office, but now controls and has captured the Republican Party, even though he has four trials he's facing with 91 criminal counts, and not only has he captured the Republican Party and may well recapture the White House, the extent to which Comer and and, uh, Johnson and uh, the rest of the MAGA Republicans in the House uh, seem to be dancing to his tune and seem to be completely subservient to him, then that would suggest that this same man has also also captured the legislative branch, at least the House, not the Senate, obviously. And to some extent, you could argue that he's also captured the legislative branch through the Supreme Court, where he clearly has seated three of these conservative justices uh, who have a supermajority. So... It seems to me that obviously there is corruption in both parties, particularly on the Democratic side with Senator Menendez. But I don't think we've ever seen a situation where this one incredibly corrupt man has had so much power and so much control. Yeah, I would agree with you absolutely that we are seeing, seeing an unprecedented level you know, of some of these longstanding problems. I think that's definitely a, you know, a very... Uh, accurate statement to say the least. Um, you know, and I think, you know, if you think back, if you want to talk about precedents and things being unprecedented or precedented, you know, uh, we had a president in the late 70s, Jimmy Carter, who had a, you know, he had a relatively small potatoes, you know, to mix metaphors here, uh, you know, peanut farm interest. And because he was concerned about there being any potential for perhaps people trying to influence his administration by, I don't, I don't know, purchasing a lot of peanuts or something to that, he actually divested himself and sold off his, his, small little peanut farm. And then on, you know, on the complete other end of the spectrum, a mere 30, 35 years later or so, you have a, you have an, a business person with holdings all over the world who chooses to not do anything to divest or to, you know, construct any, um, you know, reasonable safeguards around the perception of conflicts of interest and corruption and, you know, influence peddling in that. So yes, I think we're definitely at a different place now than we have been before when it comes to these issues. And, 
you know, again, I, you know, I always come back to, you know, Congress has the ability to do something about it, to create rules and regulations and restrictions around these kinds of things, but they, they continuously choose not to. And that's a you know, deep frustration for a lot of us here in the public. Well, the report uh, quotes Trump himself uh, in a campaign rally in 2015, where he talked about the Saudis and quoting Trump. Saudi Arabia, I get along great with all of them. They buy apartments from me. They spend 40 million, 50 million. Am I supposed to dislike them? I like them very much. Now, you know, he put his body where (laughs) his mouth was and showed up in Saudi Arabia on his first trip abroad as the United States president, making it clear that they are a number one priority. But his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, got essentially $2 billion or even more, perhaps, from the Saudis in a murky deal, which the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund managers didn't, even, didn't want to do because they didn't think he was qualified, but was overridden by Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. And Mnuchin got a billion from them as well. Then it does look as if there's a lot of corruption in that. Do you think that we'll ever, in spite of all of the focus on the so-called Biden crime family, will anybody really seriously investigate Trump's links to Saudi Arabia, and in particular, the what seems to be a payoff to Jared Kushner? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, obviously, here we see that there is some some effort to investigate that at the congressional level, at least among Democrats. And, uh, you know, you've certainly got other entities, you know, law enforcement entities who, you know, I would think would have investigated it or looked into it or could currently be, and we may just not know, you know, the SEC, you know, you know as it pertains to specifically financial interactions, you know, DOJ, of course, is a, uh, a player FBI as well. But then again, from the other end of the spectrum, you see that there are also a lot of cries these days to rein in the FBI or rein in the DOJ because there is a perception of a two-tiered justice system, which is, you know, it's like, I think that only further muddies the water and creates a chilling effect potentially around those entities being willing to pursue, you know, pursue investigations, even if they are credible and legitimate lines of inquiry. Um, you know, if you're getting politically attacked from Congress, you know, the entities who happen to control your budget, you can see where it, you know, creates a, you know, a problem that I think plays into this whole mess in, the, in just a different way, but an equally scary way. Well, just in the last couple of minutes, uh, Dylan, a, a friend of mine r- refers to Washington, D.C. as Nigeria on the Potomac. And he's somebody that was in the high up in the CIA. And when you think about how much Saudi money ends up with buying off all kinds of senior foreign officials from the Department of Defense, Department of State and CIA, etc. You think of all the dark money, one man, Leonard Leo, who stacked the Supreme Court with these ultra-conservative justices and threw dark money uh, the federal bench as well. And the fact that our legislators spend most of their time dialing for dollars. They're, in effect, telemarketers. They don't do much of the people's business because they're spending all their time raising money. And Citizens United has opened the floodgates. Are we to conclude that just about everybody in Washington, D.C. is for sale? Oh. Uh, so I think that's a little uncharitable. I totally understand why. <laughs> okay, that I'll back down a little. <laughs> just a little bit, though. I mean, we cert- there are certainly many people, you know, you know, in various positions in the government, be they the- in the executive branch or in Congress or the judiciary, who are genuinely, you know, thought- 
it's extremely upstanding people who genuinely care about public service, but all it takes is for a few people, particularly in high position, to really ruin the whole enterprise. And because of the way the system is set up, you know, if you have a couple of folks here and there in different agencies who have, you know, a particular kind of power, they're able to really gum up the works. And, you know, we see plenty of instances of, you know, corruption and, you know, conflicts of interest and those kinds of things to really, you know, cast a pall over the entire endeavor of self-government. And so that's a, you know, it all feeds into a broader issue of you know, the public, you know, uh, the public does not trust the government right now. And oftentimes you can totally understand why, but but it ends up being a sort of a, you know, a negative feedback loop downward spiral dynamic where the less the public trusts the government, the less trustworthy people end up going into government. So it feeds on itself and it creates the, you know, again, I referred to it earlier as the death spiral. And I, you know, I tend to be a congenital optimist, Ian, but in this case, I'm a little bit pessimistic insofar as I don't know how we, you know, break ourselves out of that feedback loop. Well, Dylan Hetlick-Godet, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Absolutely. Glad to be here and Come back anytime. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Dylan Hedler Godet, who is a senior government affairs manager at POGO, the Project on Government Oversight, where he advocates for good government policy solutions in a range of issue areas, including foreign influence, judicial ethics and transparency, greater accountability and openness at the Department of Justice, enhancing the capability and integrity of Congress, and the protection of core constitutional principles, among others. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the names named in the release of 40 documents out of 200 unsealed from the case against Jeffrey Epstein's procurer, Ghislaine Maxwell. And now, a word from the president. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. Getting voted into the White House. Everything looking good to the people of the world. But the market family is my boss. The voters of the world keep supporting me. And I promise to take you very far. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Nina Burley, who's a contributing editor at The New Republic, a journalist and best-selling author, documentary producer, and publisher of the Substack American Freak Show. She's an adjunct professor at New York University's Arthur J. Carter Journalism Institute, and her journalism has been published widely, including in The New York Times, The New Yorker, Airmail, and The New York Magazine. She's written seven books, the latest of which is Virus, Vaccinations, the CDC, and the Hijacking of America's Response to the Pandemic, and Golden Handcuffs, The Secret History of Trump's Women. And she is the producer of a recent documentary series on Apple TV, Epstein's Shadow. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nina Burley. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us, and I obviously want to talk to you about your a cover article at the New Republic, Biden's other formidable opponent in 2024, which is needless to say Fox News. But now that there's been a release of, uh, there are apparently 200 documents that were generated in the a case by the Epstein accuser in 2015, a civil case against uh, Shalane Mas- Maxwell, who was convicted in 2022, serving 20 years for sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. There were 200 documents apparently on the list, and only 40 have been released so far. And what do you make of the contents of the 40? It doesn't seem to be too many smoking guns or, or that much that we don't already know. How, how did it strike you? 
Yeah, I mean, that is actually how it strikes me. Um, the, um, you know, if you, those of us who have been sinking into these documents for years, since they started to dribble out 20, what was it, 2019, right before he committed suicide or was otherwise dispatched in jail, um, we, we've seen a lot of um, these names before. Um, you know, the documents when they released them were riddled with black redactions. And so when you read them, you, it makes you wonder who, you know, who, who those redactions are. And we knew that people were fighting to keep their names out of the record, but it seems that most of the names that have come out, at least as of last night, are names that were already out in the public. Um, Bill Richardson, the late um, UN ambassador, and I guess, governor of New Mexico, um, Clinton, um, you know, uh, the names are, they're, they're names that we've already heard. And there is, the, the only kind of new thing um, is a deposition of one of the girls uh, in Florida that he was um, trafficking or grooming or whatever you want to call it, where she talks about how uh, 2015, after uh, the, um, you know, after he had Epstein had served a short sentence and then gone back to his ways living in New York, Paris and, and, uh, Mexico, um, where, uh, he was, Ghislaine Maxwell, his, his Adam was getting sued by one of the girls and he offered to, um, have, uh, to pay young girls in Florida who knew about this situation to pay them off in, in order to talk them into sort of not helping the Virginia Jeffrey, the person who brought the original case against Colleen Maxwell. So that is kind of new, but basically the names are not, you know, we don't, we don't see any new names in there and there's nothing in there that confirms further any, you know, there's no sort of smoking gun where you would say, yes, Alan did too. There's no doubt that Alan Dershowitz was, uh, molesting teenagers or, you know, that there's no doubt that Clinton was having sex with underage girls on the airplane or, you know, there's none of that in there. And so, um, and whether there ever will be, um, it's hard to tell because they still have more, um, information to release. But the sweetheart deal that got Epstein a slap on the wrist for his disgusting behavior, which was uh, his lawyer, of course, was Alan Dershowitz and the former Secretary of Labor, uh, was a U.S. attorney down there. So this Dershowitz, I mean, I know he's he strenuously uh, objected to these revelations, but there's no way in the world he's going to squirm his way out of this one, is there? Um, well, what do you mean, squirm his way out of the allegations in the documents? Right. The further allegations? Um yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, he just, you know, he denies and denies, and right. it's his word against theirs. Um, I mean, it'd be interesting. I don't know how old the guy is, but you know, he, it'd be interesting if he. What what's he going to do? Sue the sue those girls for defamation and claim that they're lying. I'm sure he's going to say that they're lying about it. So I don't well, know. Prince, I mean, Prince I, I Andrew paid. <laughs> right, Prince Andrew paid off his yeah, accuser. That's right quite handsomely, yes. at the same time strenuously objecting and saying he, he was innocent. So that seems to right. be 
the M.O. of these people. But right. my understanding is that essentially what Epstein was was a blackmailer. You know, he inveigled these wealthy individuals into his orbit, gave them these sexual favors from underage girls, etc., and then blackmailed them. Is that is that your understanding? Yeah, I mean, I mean you know, when we worked on the documentary about Ghislaine Maxwell, um, we, the director and I and other investigative journalists who were involved, we would have these conversations all the time. Like, what what was the what was the reason for this? We know that this was happening. We know that these girls were, that our young women were victimized. Um, they've come forward, but we, it's hard to believe that um, this cold fish, you know, Epstein had this kind of Olympian carnal desire where, you know, he had to have sex with four different or six different girls, you know, daily. And it's it's hard to believe that that actually was the reason that this was all happening. Um, and that, that, you know, some of the people we talked to were, let's say, ex-intelligence people um, who just thought, yeah, it was a this is this was a blackmail factory. Like he was he would groom these young women to um, then dispatch them because if you're 13 or 14 or 15 and you're suddenly you know first for the first time being with a naked adult man, you don't act the way they want you to. So he would train them into, you know, this sort of servile or whatever to do certain things. And then the ones who were, who did what he wanted them to do became the ones that he would trade up or, you know, send forth and, and, and use as either deal sweeteners or for blackmail. I mean, you know, whether, whether this was overt blackmail or people just kind of knew that he knew these things and therefore were, you know, would, would supply him with more money or get into, you know, give him information that he wanted. Um, You know, there's, there's also the question of like, well, who, who was this all for? Like, what's the black bill factory for, right? Who, who was he trying to, you know, who was he doing this for? And it's, it's hard to tell there again, because, you know, you have um, the people who do talk about it, like um, the former Israeli, um, by who we had on our show, who's talked a lot about, you know, he claims that Epstein was on the payroll for, uh, for the Israelis. But then you have the guy saying, you know, the guy who says that is, you know, he's accused of being a liar and, you know, spies lie. And, you know, so it's hard to tell whether he was working for them or whether he was working for, you know, he had Saudi passport, I believe. I can't remember. He had a he had a Saudi passport, I think, in the in the safe um, at the house in in New York. Um, he was all mobbed up with Russians, um, you know. So it's hard to tell. Like, was he just sort of selling this stuff to the highest bidder? Was he doing people's favors? I mean, one one thing I did a story on a couple of years ago was his involvement with the Norwegian diplomat, who was really the key figure in the Oslo Accords. Um, and he basically gave the guy um, enough money to buy a villa in, on a Greek island. And uh, they had a lot of interaction, you know. So was he, and those, and the, apparently like some of those materials have disappeared, the Oslo Accords materials. Um, this is widely known in Norway. They've covered it. 
and that guy is, is, is now, you know, banished and ignominious, although his wife is still at the UN, um, who also was involved in the Oslo Accords. So we, we don't really know. Like, you, it, there's just, just a, it's just a strange, murky kind of world where even if these records keep coming out, I mean, only, you know, the only thing that's going to happen, that's going to change anything is if somebody like Elaine Maxwell or these assistants, these quote unquote assistants, or a lot of them were female, if they come forward eventually and say, yeah, you know, uh, there really was a room in his house with recording material. I mean, that's one of the things we were, were told, you know, that, that, that in that New York mansion, there was, it's all, it was all cameraed up and there was actually a room where people could, you know, there was like a, a, a tracking room or something like it, where you could actually watch all the things that were going on and record and that he was recording things. Um, you know, but again, somebody has to come forward from the inside. And what's interesting about the does is that they're not all men. A lot of them are the women or the, you know, women who were 18 or 17 or 16 at the time um, who don't want their names in the public stream because they're afraid, not just afraid for their reputations, but they're actually afraid of these powerful people, right? And, you know, it is reasonable to be afraid of a, of, say, of a Leon Black. I mean, a Leon Black who paid, you know, the who settled the case down in um, U.S. Virgin, not the U.S. Virgin Islands, the U.S. Virgin Islands, yes. He, he, he paid to settle this prosecutor down there, brought a case against um, a whole bunch of people you know, including banks in, in relation to the trafficking of girls that they were bringing in and out of the island that um, that uh, Epstein owned. And Leon Black had paid, I don't know how many tens of millions, it's something like $60 million to settle this case down there. And you're just, you, you read that and you're like, well, what, what was it? Leon Black is a billionaire in, in New York, founder of one of the biggest hedge funds. And he's like been the chairman of the of the board of MoMA, and he's very involved in, in you know New York society and certainly on Wall Street. Um, why would you pay that much money to settle a case down there? That's a lot of money to to hide your to keep yourself out of the um, you know whatever you did to keep that out of the public stream. So you settle it, right? So somebody like that, when, when they're up against people with that kind of power, that kind of monetary financial power and influence, um, and you're, you know, a former foster child from, you know, the wrong side of the bridge down in Palm Beach, you are reasonably afraid that they can do pretty bad things to you. So those are the those are the does that there's some of the does that are, whose names are not coming out. It's not all people like Bill Clinton. Sure. But in terms of of this MO of blackmail and the possibility that he was doing it uh, at the behest of foreign intelligence, whether it's the Mossad or yeah. or the KGB or its successor agency, the SVR, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. Compromat, of course, is a is a part of their system. Mm-hmm. Um, my understanding is that there is this infamous safe, and that. When the, the Southern District of New York started their case against Epstein, they had possession of whatever was in that safe, whether it was the the compromised material tapes and videos and whatever. But of course, when when Epstein ended up being, you know, allegedly committing suicide, although that's somewhat doubtful, 
then that evidence essentially was buried because it was in, inadmissible because the accused was no longer able to uh, go to trial. And then it as presumably has been revived in the Maxwell case. So where where is that evidence now, the contents of that safe, whatever was in it, which a lot of people think <laughs> well, asking, was full of compromise? I mean, you have to ask people like David Boyce, the attorney for, for some of those girls, or, or uh, Brad Edwards down in Florida, or get somebody from, you know, how you get somebody from the um, SDNY to come and tell you what they did with it, because that's not something that anybody knows the answer to. And, mm. and also, I, I'm not sure that that would ever come out in the Ghislaine Maxwell case. Ever, because Ghislaine Maxwell's involvement with him ended in this sort of operation. It really ended after he uh, was served his first, you know, the, the, the eight months down in Palm Beach. She was out of there after that. She, was, she had a new boyfriend. She was not living down there anymore. She wasn't inter- interacting with him. They started to reconnect because Virginia Jeffrey sued her for defamation. That's what all these documents are coming out of. They're coming out of a case where Virginia Jeffrey, who's one of the, the girl who was trafficked to Prince Andrew um, and who had a lot of interaction with Ghislaine Maxwell and a lot of interaction with Epstein, told her story to the Daily Mail, I think, or one of the papers in Britain, I can't remember. And that newspaper published Ghislaine Maxwell's response to that story in in its newspaper, right? And and Virginia and, and in it, Virginia, or sorry, in it, Ghislaine Maxwell said of Virginia, she's a liar. Mm-hmm. And Virginia said, well, I'm not a liar, and I'm suing you for defamation. And that is the case out of which all of these materials are coming now, because it went. They went through an enormous amount of deposition. They went back to Florida. They interviewed, you know, girl after girl after girl. And it is a fascinating document, a pile of pages, because that there's where you see the houseman, the major domo of the house in, in Palm Beach, um, and the girls who did talk to uh, the investigators on this defamation case, uh, describing really what was happening, the, you know, the nonstop. Um, solicitation that was going on, the cruising of Palm Beach, you know, back alleys and colleges that Ghislaine Maxwell was doing to get girls into the house, and the involvement of the major domo and the driver who would bring the girls back and forth, and the major domo who would clean up the massage room after they were having these sex um, games with the young women, all of them testifying and testifying under oath in depositions. And that's the material that's coming out now. It's that stuff that has been out there since 2019, since, since right. the, you know, that material first came out in August of 2019. The bulk of it was dropped into the public, like 900 pages. That was the very beginning. And Epstein was dead in jail uh, two days later. So... Right. That material, to me, that what is in those documents was so damaging to him and to people who were involved with him that that was the connection, that his death really was really after, right after that stuff came out. And now we're just seeing dribs and drabs of what more is in there. 
and they have not revealed anything further beyond like, well, the shocker was when we were reading was like, oh, wow, Bill Richardson, you know, Clinton's U.N. ambassador. I mean, what was he involved, you know, and Dershowitz and, you know, these these people's names have been out there for years. And that was when it came out. It came out right before he killed himself or, as you say, maybe not kill himself, but perished in the uh, Metropolitan Correctional Center in, in Manhattan. But just in closing, though, isn't the contents of the safe that are in the hands of the, the Southern District of New York, I believe it was Maureen Comey, the former FBI head's daughter that was in charge of the case, That's that compromise still exists, right? But it's still sealed? Is that the bottom line here, that the real smoking gun? I don't gun? know. I, 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 Ian, I, I have no idea. I mean, nobody right. says any. Nobody's re- reported um, what happened to it. I mean, obviously, everybody would like to get their hands on it. And I think it's, you know, it's deep six. I don't know if it's down there in the bottom of the, you know, harbor in Manhattan or burned up, incinerated, or if it's still sitting in a in a vault somewhere, you know, it's like the Kennedy assassination stuff. Like it's stuff that you're never going to see, or maybe you're going to see 60 years from now, or maybe it's just never going to come out. Well, it should be in the possession of FBI counterintelligence, shouldn't it? Given the likelihood well, well, that foreign... Well, exactly. And that the, you, you're using a word that's quite important here, is counterintelligence. Why is this not, and why was it not already a counterintelligence investigation? because he clearly was involved with these other governments. And possibly there the is, Russians you know, as well. They never, they've never, as far as I know, maybe you know something that I don't know, they have never opened a counterintelligence investigation. Maybe they have. I don't know. But I am not aware of it. Well, Nina Burley, I thank you so much for joining us here today. And let's stay in touch because this story is <laughs> hardly over. I'll let you know I'll keep my eyes on it. Okay. And again, right. I, Take care. you too. And again, I've been speaking with Nina Burley, who's a contributing editor at The New Republic. She's a journalist, best-selling author, documentary producer, and publisher of the Substack American Freak Show, and an adjunct professor at New York University's Arthur J. Carter Journalism Institute. And her journalism has been published widely, including in The New York Times, New Yorker, Airmail, and New York Magazine. And she's written seven books, the latest of which is Virus, Vaccinations, the CDC, and the Hijacking of America's Response to the Pandemic, and Golden Handcuffs, the Secret History of Trump's Women. And she is the producer of a recent documentary series on Apple TV, Epstein's Shadow. We're going to take a restation break. We're back speaking with an Israeli-born and educated scholar who argues against Israel's philosophical apologist about the conduct of the war in Gaza. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Nia Ayel, who is the inaugural Henry Rutgers Professor of Bioethics at Rutgers University, where he's also founded and directs the Center for Population-Level Bioethics. 
within the Institute for Health, Healthcare Policy and Aging Research. He is also Associate Faculty Member of Rutgers Department of Philosophy in the School of Arts and Sciences and has an article in the philosophy blog, The Daily Noose, Disproportionate and Intended Harm to Innocence in Israel's War on Gaza. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nir Eyal. Thank you so much, Ian, for including me. Looking well, thanks to for joining us, Nir, and you are an Israeli-born and educated scholar, and you have a piece, as I mentioned, in the philosophy magazine, uh, Noose, um, where, in the blog, The Daily Noose, where you argue four points against what you call Israel's philosophical apologists uh, in terms of how they are waging the war in Gaza. So let's start with proportionality in defense, unlike proportionality in punishment, weighs harms inflicted against harms to be prevented, not against harms already suffered. So elaborate, if you will. That's exactly right, Ian. Um, When theorists of justice and war and just war assess whether um, action and war, the entire war, are, is proportionate um, in the harm that it inflicts on civilians and non-combatants. Um, they don't look at how bad the events that may have triggered the war have been. They only look at what could be achieved later on through that action. And that's a key point because the Hamas attack of October 7th um, um, included unspeakable crimes on a significant scale. Um, many Israelis were killed and kidnapped. Um, but if you look at what the war in Gaza is likely to prevent, it's a very different picture. During October 7th, Israel came to staff its border with Gaza. At that point, the immediate threat for Hamas from Hamas to Israelis has become almost nil. Hamas attempted to break into Israel later through the fence, uh, through the sea, and it was immediately stopped because once Israel did what perhaps it should have done in the first place and staffed its border with Gaza, the prospect of killing many more Israelis became really um, far, far smaller than um, it was a day earlier. So uh, the proportion um, which uh, is um, measured between what um, a war could prevent and uh, the harm that it inflicts on civilians is, for that basic reason, grossly um, out of whack here. Um, The few Israelis that would have been killed if there were no war, say the odd soldier who was in the wrong time in the wrong place before a future attempt to uh, break into Israel was uh, stopped. And people who might be killed by Hamas missiles into Israel, which in recent uh, years have killed consistently less than 10 people a year uh, in Israel. These are very small numbers, probably below 10 people a year. And as we are saying, the number of people whom this war is killing as a side effect largely in Gaza among the civilian population is large and will increase a lot when disease, starvation uh, take their toll. The Guardian on December 21st ran an article that said 
that some health officials are expecting something like 500,000 deaths. Just complete disproportion between uh, what Israel is can achieve in the short run from this war and the harm that it caused the civilian population. Of course, there is also long-term potential accomplishments of this war in terms of stopping Hamas from uh, developing a future attack. Hamas has proven itself to be creative and maybe one day they will develop some weapons of mass destruction, but you don't go ahead and start a preemptive war against uh, that kills so many people just because of the odd chance that one day the enemy might, that doesn't even have it, you know, it's more extreme than the preemptive war that uh, George Bush Jr. had in Iraq because they do not have these weapons yet. It's just on the odd chance that one day something will develop. It's absolutely impossible to justify killing so many people uh, for that reason. There are also other um, potential justifications. Maybe attacking Hamas would help deter against uh, attacks from Hezbollah uh, in the north of Israel or still other attacks. Um, but but those are becoming more speculative. And we could discuss also the ethics of kind of in- killing people as a side effect in Gaza, but instrumentally towards deterring against enemies that have nothing to do with Gaza. That to me uh, violates uh, various other norms in, in the way that one should um, run a war according to how ethicists uh, uh, define the ethics of uh, justice and war. So was the response then, which was predictable, and clearly Hamas did that heinous attack and butchered those civilians on October the 7th to provoke the very response that they got? Maybe they didn't expect it to be so severe, but clearly they don't care about civilian casualties. That, in fact, helps them in in many ways. Was the reasons for why Israel behaved the way that it did uh, that simply the, the country was traumatized? And if it was, as it's been set up as a country where Jews will finally be safe, was there an obligation on the part of the Israeli government to reestablish deterrence and safety, even though it's clearly backfiring? Who knows what is um, driving exactly the Israeli politicians? I can report to you what I read in the news, uh, their declarations. I can report what I see as the actions of the army and try to glean from that what is the line. I can tell you what is the rhetoric uh, that is uh, going on in the media. In the early days of the war, certainly you know, when the any plans were hatched, um, the rhetoric was very alarming. Uh, There was absolute talk about revenge, about uh, flattening Gaza City as a goal of the um, war. Um, Netanyahu compared Hamas, sorry, he said, uh, remember what Amalek has done to you. That's a biblical quote. Um, The Amalekites are this nation that attacked the, the Israeli tribes in the desert and the biblical dictum is to commit genocide against Amalek, not to leave uh, any baby or woman or old person alive. Uh, and King David was uh, punished once when he uh, succumbed to a temptation to to uh, fail to uh, kill some of those. Um, so that's um, 
virginocidal um, rhetoric. Uh, the president of the state of Israel, uh, Itzhak Herzog, uh, explained that there is no room for separating Gazan civilians from Hamas fighters. And it goes on and on and on. I'm not even mentioning the woolier parts of the ruling coalition and what is going on in uh, X and Instagram and the TV channels. Uh, people have often translated that into very concrete terms. They said we should intentionally kill. I, I give links in my article to people who said in the media, leading speakers, um, we should kill. We should have killed on the first night 50,000 civilians in Gaza. That, that's how people spoke. Uh, at that um, point, uh, the war plans were hatched. Um, I note that later Israel used uh, very indiscriminate weapons in very dense parts of Gaza. It continues to do that uh, now in south in southern Gaza, where uh, it told people they could flee for their safety from the north. Um, and um, Israel's line of defense about this is, um, look, we're not doing it with an intent to kill innocents. We are trying to get the Hamas people. It's their fault, not our fault. They're hiding among the civilian population, that they're hiding in schools, they're hiding in hospitals, under hospitals. We need to use these big bombs to get to their shelters under the ground. And uh, we have no other choice. But there is also evidence of um, cruelty that goes beyond what is absolutely needed for the war aims. Um, Israel often destroys buildings, key civil buildings, uh, historical mosques, um, schools, courts, um, parliament, uh, after uh, its soldiers already reside in them. So there is no excuse in terms of we need to um, detonate it before the uh, explosives that might be hidden there that kill our soldiers. Um, sort of just for the sake of, it seems, just for the sake of flattening, just for the sake of teaching a lesson, revenge. Um, Israel um, is, has used so many indiscrimin indiscriminate weapons that um, the portion of buildings destroyed or damaged in Gaza City is absolutely astounding. Nothing like other wars of America and Iraq, of Russia and Ukraine, just incredible scale, inconceivable. So um, there is some reason to suspect that it's possible. I'm not saying that that's clear, but there it, it is a possibility that um, part of what is going on is that Israel, which in real time is saying to people, get out of the building, we're going to bomb it, has created a situation in the first place in which a lot of damage would happen to buildings, to families. Uh, it's also blocking now the food aid. Um, there is some evidence that what is really going on is um, what some commentators in Israel, I'm thinking about people like um, a senior defense uh, expert uh, whose name is Giora Island, Ayla Chaked, who was in the previous government, and others have called for. And what they call for is, they say, if you look at what they write, I have links to their influential um, articles also in my blog post. They say, let us intentionally make life absolutely un unlivable in Gaza for the Gazans, create a catastrophic situation for them so that they will flee, so that the world would, on humanitarian grounds, let them get 
to other countries and we'll just get rid of our Gaza problem once and for all. Let these people flee to the desert, to countries uh, far away. We don't want them here anymore. And I'm not saying that it's certain that this is what Israel is trying to achieve. Certainly central speakers, um, the government's own Ministry of Intelligence had a report that said we should now transfer uh, the Palestinians in Gaza, the entire civilian population out of Gaza. Uh, there are certainly voices calling for that, and it is not impossible that this is in fact what is driving this war, which has probably deliberately very, very vague war aims. But just in the last couple of minutes then, shortly after the war began, President Biden went to Israel and and hugged uh, Netanyahu. But he did warn, saying, warn Israel not to repeat what the U.S. did after 9-11, where we acted out of revenge and not necessarily with any sober considerations or even any strategic aims. What should they have done, do you think, in your in your mind? To hold Hamas accountable, and I, I do believe that you know something had to happen after the horrible crimes of October 7th. Um, some commentators have suggested that um, economic sanctions um, could have gone a very long way. Israel was economically supporting Hamas deliberately. Um, Netanyahu was doing that for years uh, in order to weaken the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. It should have bolstered its border uh, so as to prevent invasions. It could have used its moral high ground uh, before it started committing all these atrocities to go the, the international courts, not to go after Israel the way uh, now the court in Hague is going after us uh, because uh, on the ground that we are committing genocide, but instead uh, to go after Hamas. Um, it could have done the same thing to put pressure on Qatar, on Egypt, on Turkey to um, stop supporting Hamas. And there are also things that Israel could do independently to um, try to address the dangers in the north from Hezbollah. If all that failed, it could also, in my view, uh, I think some people on the relative left wouldn't agree with me, it could resort to a policy of uh, target, highly targeted assassinations against the decision makers in Hamas. I think that would have been legitimate given the crimes that were committed on October 7th and the dangers that these people harbor. This is not some sort of uh, silver bullet would have resolved all the problems. Uh, these people are replaced by others. Some of them are not personally deterred by the dangers of being on the run. Uh, but it would create some delay, and the delay is key. With years of time, you know, the border is secure, they can't invade. So much can happen in the very dynamic area that I come from. Uh, there can be political changes. People can turn away from Hamas, um, turn to more peaceful alternatives in Gaza and the West Bank. There is room for economic uh, sanctions, success against Hamas. In years to come, maybe a hudna, a hudna is uh, Hamas's term for a long-term ceasefire, could be achieved. Something that is absolutely not conceived today, conceivable today. But in the past, Hamas has offered those, and uh, in a very different moment in the public atmosphere, maybe something that we could all settle on. Um, who knows where we we could arrive once we stabilize the border, stop the immediate risk, and think about what more constructively could be done. 
Well, Nira Yala, thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian, for this opportunity. I'm very grateful. And thank you again, Nir Eyal, who is the inaugural Henry Rutgers Professor of Bioethics at Rutgers University, where he also founded and directs the Centre for Population Level Bioethics within the Institute for Health, Healthcare Policy and Ageing and Ageing Research. He's also an Associate Faculty Member of Rutgers Department of Philosophy in the School of Arts and Sciences, and he has an article at the philosophy blog, The Daily Noose, Disproportionate and Intended Harm to Innocence in Israel's War in Gaza. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.